Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 8, Into Exile. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 of Season 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, if you're already on the way with us, welcome back. I've missed you, friend. Here is today's story. Jehoiakim's brief career is the context for some of Jeremiah's finest work with regard to the Abraplan. After leveling the sober news that the 18-year-old king will have a brief reign and then be exiled, though he has the comfort of knowing his mother will go with him, Jeremiah 22:24, Jeremiah casts one of his strongest lines further into the future. Not only will a remnant return from exile, but fulfilled shall be our covenantal promise to David that one from his line will come whom Jeremiah calls a righteous branch. Actually, here's the whole thing. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, yes I do, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, Yahweh our righteous Savior. That's Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. In the sentences just before this lick in Jeremiah, I've said that I'll gather a remnant back for as fresh a start as possible which is hard to miss when we use the term be fruitful and multiply and with it conjure all of Genesis and the promise of new creation in the third verse. Then the dense promises of this passage hit. Israel will live in safety and Judah will be saved by the king from David's line who reigns wisely and rules in justice and righteousness. All key words but particularly that last one, righteousness. Remember, that's the driving theme and force of our entire story with you. I am righteous, perfect, and holy. You begin so in Eden, but then when you choose to rebel and are rendered unrighteous by your actions, a rift is torn between us. It is the repair of that separation the gulf between righteousness and unrighteousness, between perfection and imperfection, that is the purpose of the Abra plan, in order that we can be face to face with you again, just as we have rehearsed with you time and again throughout this project. Because of Jeremiah's instant words, we must draw your attention to the name he gives the coming king. Now, in order to make better sense in your habitat, some of your translations have an extra noun thrown in, as does the one we've quoted, Savior, which is fine and true. But we want you to know the bare simple name in Hebrew. Yahweh is our righteousness. Do you see how huge that is? 
here in the midst of all the proof of human unrighteousness that's requiring the covenantal consequence of exile, Jeremiah and I set the groundwork for a seismic shift in the Abra plan. The part that is coming to an end with exile has in essence been focused on humanity's righteousness, or lack thereof. The next part, nestled in the context of the returned remnant, will focus on our righteousness, shifting from being the thing that keeps you away from us into being the force that reconciles you to us. Righteousness not coming up from within you or built up by your obedience to rules, but flowing somehow from us onto and into you. Yahweh is your righteousness. I am your righteousness. By some means, the King Jeremiah names will bring this about, and so great a turning point will this be that the exodus out of Egyptian exile will be a footnote in comparison to all that we accomplish with the return from Babylonian exile. For I declare that the days are coming when people will no longer say, as surely as Yahweh lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as Yahweh lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Jeremiah 23, 7 and 8. Jeremiah goes on with strong assurances that his sober words accurately portray Judah's nearing end, and that the false prophets who are proclaiming that everything is fine are in gross error and headed for their own appointed end to coincide with the conclusion of Jehoiakim's reign. Jeremiah 23.9 And so it is that Jehoiakim, yet another unremarkable, unrepentant king, is on Judah's throne when Jerusalem is finally besieged. We had prevented Assyria from doing so in the past, in the reign of righteous Hezekiah. But Judah has persisted in her rebellion, and her time has run out. No mere lieutenant, however, will be allowed to capture our beloved city, home to our house and the hopes of the nation. No, for such an epic moment, the legendary king himself, Nebuchadnezzar, will be the one to whom Jehoiakim surrenders. Nebuchadnezzar's account in the Babylonian Chronicle indicates that Jerusalem, the city of Judah, is under siege for a bare three months. Jehoiakim has at least enough sense to lose his throne the easy way, knowing there is no point in resisting further. More lives are spared by his submitting to exile than by a fruitless attempt to rebel in the face of such an overwhelming force as Nebuchadnezzar's. We, of course, have beaten such odds before with our kings, but by now you know well why I must withdraw my hand and let the consequences roll. It is once again the narrative in Kings that provides the sad details. At 2 Kings 24, 8 and following. We would much rather you read it in Tom for yourself than have to go through it all here. When Jehoiakim gives himself up to Nebuchadnezzar, everyone remaining from the first deportation who has developed any role of significance in Judah, 
from royal officials to artisans and blacksmiths, are carried away to Babylon, along with the treasures of the king's house and mine. The people left behind in Jerusalem will be ruled by Nebuchadnezzar through his appointed vassal king, Mataniah, the third son of good Josiah to be placed on Judah's throne, and uncle to the exiled Jehoiakim. As further indication of our momentary use of the Babylonian emperor at this point, Nebuchadnezzar changes the name of Mataniah, gift of Yahweh, to Zedekiah, righteousness of Yahweh. Think about the implications of that shift to that new name in view of what we and Jeremiah have just discussed about righteousness, won't you? Zedekiah's eleven-year reign begins quietly enough. All is calm in the region for a while, as no one dares question the supremacy of Babylon. Zedekiah even journeys to Babylon in his fourth year as Nebuchadnezzar's vassal to pay his respects to the boss. Jeremiah 51:59. Jeremiah actually goes along with the king's entourage, delivering word of the eventual sinking of the great empire. This man is not someone you wanted to see headed in your direction. Zedekiah and the riffraff left behind after the surrendered exile of Jehoiakim seem to know their place back in what's left of Jerusalem and live at peace for now. Meanwhile, things are going on amongst these already exiled children of ours over in Babylon. Most notable are two upstanding educated men, which is what got them exiled in the first place, that are the first to be lit up as prophets in exile. There will be several more like them before their time in Babylon is through, but the charter exile prophets are Ezekiel and Daniel. In most Two Testament toms, both their books are found right after Jeremiah's, or rather, after Lamentations, which is placed as a postscript on the heels of Jeremiah since it's assumed to be his work. It does fit well with Jeremiah's justifiably gloomy moods, not by any means to dismiss this important work. We'll take a further glance at it soon. After Lamentation, some of you have in there then a brief book attributed to Baruch, Jeremiah's scribe, who is apparently giving it a go on his own as well for six chapters. Ezekiel is next in time, location, and size, sporting 48 chapters to Jeremiah's 52, warranting his own scroll and the classification of major prophet along with the two previous writers in Tom regardless of your version. Those two previous would be Isaiah and Jeremiah, in case you haven't picked this up in a while. If you're reading a Tanakh, Daniel is off later in The Writings, which is understandable. He's got a handful of memorable stories, but not the journeyman career of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. If, however, he were consigned to be one of the minor prophets, two of whom actually have more chapters than Daniel, that ruins the whole symbolism of there being twelve of them. Both placement solutions, after Ezekiel, they are writing about the same time, after all, or often the writings with chronicles, also where Lamentations is placed in the Tanakh, by the way, 
Both make sense in their own way. Honestly, I don't care where Daniel is in your manual, as long as you find it and read it. Daniel is chosen by a Babylonian official from among Jerusalem's exiled nobility as a sharp, handsome young fellow who can learn the language and customs of his new home quickly and thus serve well as a liaison with the Judean exiles. Daniel 1.1 Nebuchadnezzar didn't become great solely by might, but also by the wisdom of his rule. Exiles who think they have a voice at the emperor's table are less likely to revolt. Remember the role played back by a lack of representation in your habitat's relatively recent history. Daniel's got three buddies who were similarly drafted and trained. Of course, just as the clerks at Ellis Island simplified countless immigrants' names to sound more American, the young Hebrew men get their names changed to sound more Babylonian and include roots that point to Babylonian gods. Daniel is known far better by his given Hebrew name, which would be Daniel, which means God is my judge in Hebrew. His Babylonian name is Belteshazzar, associated with their god, Bel. Check Daniel 4.8. Oddly enough, Daniel's pals, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, meaning Yahweh has been gracious, who is what God is and Yahweh has helped, respectively, are known better by their Babylonian monikers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The tongue twister of many a tyke for years to come, names associated with the Babylonian gods Aku and Nabo. Daniel is another bivocational prophet, tri-vocational if you count the writing-it-all-down part. He's essentially a government official, and also our spokesman. He's got another unique calling. Just as Habakkuk wasn't preaching in the streets, our words to and through Daniel are not intended for our exiled children at first, but for the king of Babylon. Of course, it all transpires with the intention of Daniel's prophecies and faithful action being made known for generations in his writing. In addition, many of his words to the Babylonian kings will remain unfulfilled during their lifetimes, waiting for just the right time later in the Abra plan. Because of all that transpires next in and through Daniel, we'll hold that part of the story off until next time. Until then, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Keep walking with us on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support us, spread the word. Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Then share a link to episode one with your friends. We hope our time together today has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way and be good to yourself.